Hello, I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I'm joined this week, as every week, by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. What are you talking about this week? Obviously Will Smith's <laughs> bitch slap. Gosh, that was hilarious, wasn't I know. it? I don't know why the Americans are so upset about it. I, well, I thought that, mm. first of all, it was just a slap. Oh, yeah. I mean, in our world, that's really not very much at all, is it? <laughs> I think it was quite shocking. I think it really did make, sort of, it tainted the whole of the Oscar ceremony, which is the world's most boring ceremony. Most boring ceremony, which, so it did liven it up. But I think what's quite interesting is that, I mean, they've just sort of lost the plot. I mean, they all gave him a standing ovation. I know. I sort of, it's almost like the ceremony that ate itself. It really was, yeah. It was so bizarre. There's, because of the pandemic and because they haven't been very visible, yeah. Celebrities, they've disappeared at their own fundament, and it seems slightly weird that you know someone he'd actually sort of. Br- I mean, done- he worked with him. What he worked with Chris Walk, didn't I he? Know. I don't think they like each other. Oh, okay. I think that I think it's a I mean, very I do understand, I do understand why he, she was upset because I mean, as, as someone who has a bit of hair loss myself, yes. quite a lot of hair loss. In fact, yes. I do know what it's like when someone is really mean I, about your hair loss. Yeah, and it, it is quite a visceral thing. Mm. And and I suppose if but he thought, was laughing, yes, I know. But he was laughing until he saw her face, mm. and then he saw her face, and then he realised that he wasn't supposed to be laughing. I know. <laughs> so then he did what he well, so had. Then, she reacted and just given him the gentle finger. That yes. might. Might have been much <laughs> wittier. Yeah, exactly. That'd have been much wittier. But it was so overblown his reaction. I think he might have might have actually been might have been a bit hungry. I think he's wired he's wound very tight, isn't he? Obviously, yes. for whatever reason. And I think also a lot of expectation for him on that occasion, you know, that there he But is. he kind of blew it though, because his great big celebration yeah. was marred by his sort of stupid behaviour about know, five minutes I know. beforehand. But the thing is this idea that he should have his Oscar removed from him is Obviously ridiculous, mm. because if you've got Roman Polanski, also Harvey Weinstein, mm. they've both kept their Oscars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've actually got an Oscar, or rather your husband My has husband got an Oscar. My husband has, yes, yeah. No. Did you go to the Oscars? No, I was too fat. No. I told too you. Fat. <laughs> I was too fat. I thought there's not enough Lycra in the world to you get me just there. Have your, you just had your son. No, Ralph. my no, daughter. No, your daughter. Yeah, okay. I was way, way too fat. So there weren't enough spanks that there could get you to the Oscars. There was not enough spanks in the world to get me to the Oscars. Also, he was only nominated for Best Short Film, and I thought no one's going to talk to him anyway, let alone the wife it's of an the, Oscar. B- the sorry, person an with the best Oscar. short film. <laughs> I know, and anyway, no one was more surprised than I was when they won. And, but he does tell this fantastic story of, this is, this is the fetishization of the golden statue. Mm. So that obviously the party to go to is the Vanity Fair party, mm. and obviously they hadn't got an invite because they are nobody. And so the weird thing is, there was a limo jam to go to the party. So they got out of their limo, and walked up the street holding the Oscar. And because everyone's so mad in mm. Los Angeles, they started to clap because they saw the gold. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, they won. <laughs> and so they walked into the Vanity Fair party on a ripple of applause and went, went straight in. Yeah. Because if you've got a golden statue, you can go anywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't exactly. have a ticket. They didn't well, that, have a ticket. But that is though. your ticket to the Vanity Fair party, yes, surely. Yes. If you have a golden statue, in you go. Yeah, in you go. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he still does have an Oscar. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that is still something. I mean, he's yeah. got 70,000 BAFTAs oh, as well. well but, you know. it, no, it just, it was, yes. But it there, was, is, there is still something about the Oscar. And I think for Will Smith, it was a big moment. And I think he was very nervous. Yes. Really nervous and really wound tightly. And he does have a really odd relationship with 
Jada Pickett-Smith, his wife. Yeah. It's also a really long day and yeah. you don't get to eat yeah. anything. No. So you're sitting around... Well, you can't because otherwise you can't fit into your clothes. Can't fit into your clothes. You're sewn into your clothes. Yes, I mean, literally everybody at that ceremony will not have eaten for about a week. No. Not, or just been yeah, on a juice diet. Or go diet. to the loo or anything. Yeah. So there's nowhere... They're all hungry. They're, well, so they're, they're, yeah, because they have these sitters. So when you go to the loo there's somebody who's supposed to go and take your place. There's a huge queue of people to go and sit in your seat when you have a pee. Why? Well, so there's no empty seat in the auditorium. Although this time it looked really weird because it looked like some sort of all bar one that they were in. (laughs) (laughs) It looked really weird. So I think Will Smith had been sitting there for hours. Because there was no chance of him running off to go to the loo. Because he was front row. He was front row and there was nowhere else to go. So I think, you know, don't underestimate they're tired. They're hungry. They're hangry. They haven't had a drink. There's just nothing. They're just sitting there for hours. (laughs) Waiting (laughs) Waiting. for their gold statue. (laughs) Anyway, um, well, yes, obviously we'll see what happens with that, but I suspect um, it'll all be fine. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, coming up on today's show... Prince Andrew attended mm-hmm. the memorial service of his father, the Duke of Edinburgh, and played a very public role in the service, which not everybody was expecting. No. We're going to talk to Angela Levin, royal biographer, about that. And has the pandemic changed the way we dream? Teresa Chung is going to be on hand to reveal all. But first, an inquiry into maternity care at Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust has uncovered serious failings, which resulted in the deaths of more than 200 babies mm. and several mothers who were in labour, and not to mention many other babies who were left brain damaged. The inquiry was ordered in 2017 by the then Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, and we spoke to Jeremy yesterday in a phone interview. I mean, this is the most appalling story, isn't it? It is, and I'm afraid it's much more catastrophic than even I feared because I was Mm. approached by a couple of parents, Richard and Rhiannon Stanton-Davis, who lost their daughter Kate in 2009, and Colin and Kayleigh Griffiths, who lost their daughter Pippa in 2016, when I was health Mm. secretary. At that time, 23 families who had concerns, and the investigation was into those 23 cases. And today we hear that 201 babies could be alive today if they'd received better care. I mean, that is, uh, you know, nearly mm. 10 times more um, than we were... And that doesn't, we were count, that doesn't count the babies who were, who were left with catastrophic injuries, does it? How many of them are there? I don't know what the number is, um, but, you know, there will be many of those too. And I think it, um, mm. it just uncovers so many things. I think it's important for people listening to this podcast to remember that there are nearly 600 births every year on the NHS in England. The vast majority are totally safe and indeed mm. they're getting safer. Um, you know, mm. Baby deaths are down by more than a third over the last decade. So we are we're moving in the right direction, but mm. there is still a lot of progress to make and countries like Hungary and Slovenia have lower infant mortality rates and they have not had a modern healthcare system for anything like as long as we've had. So we've, no. we've got to ask ourselves some very searching questions. Well, I mean, was it, was it mainly to do with the Royal College of Midwives, their sort of edict that natural is best? Was that the reason for all the problems in the first place? It was definitely one of the factors. It would mm. be quite wrong to say it was the only thing. Mm. Um, I think that uh, having targets for hospitals to reduce C-section rates is one of the most unbelievably dangerous things you could imagine because it meant, as we saw, that women were pressured 
to have a vaginal birth when mm. it was unsafe to do so. And the NHS has this year scrapped its, all its targets for C-section rates, which is, which is a very important mm. step forward. But I think mm. worse than that, actually, has been the cover-up culture. The fact that even during Don Ockenden's inquiry in the last uh, four years, staff mm. at Shrewsbury and Telford Trust were told not to cooperate with her. And if they did, there could be professional consequences. And there is this culture of secrecy in the NHS where people feel that if they speak honestly and openly about something that's gone wrong, they're going to get fired. Mm. And we've got well, to that, I mean, that out. is appalling. That, that is really appalling. But I remember, see, I had my babies in 2003 and 2004. Mm. And I remember very clearly being told that, you know, Having a cesarean was the coward's way out. And, well, it was that too push the push culture thing, wasn't it, Sarah? It was that too push, push the and, push, yeah. yeah. And I remember going from the NCT classes and asking a question about pain relief and being yeah. told that a proper woman wouldn't need pain relief because, mm. you know, birth was a natural thing and, and pain relief would just make it worse. And then when I, had, when I had my first child, I was given this hormone they give you to speed up contractions. And I was in labor for 18 hours before someone noticed that my daughter was posterior presented and therefore was never coming out. But mm. I was treated, and I was in a London hospital, and I don't think this thing was just a specific, I mean, this particular case is terrible, but I think there was a culture, wasn't there, Jeremy? I mean, do you think that that may have contributed? Absolutely. No, it was very, yeah. very damaging. If you talk to James Titcombe, who lost his son Joshua at Walkham Bay, mm. he thinks that that was a, a contributory factor. Um, unfortunately, I think the sort of natural birth ideology got mixed up in the kind of natural is good, organic, um, mm, yes. you know, let's reconnect with nature movement, yeah. which has been very positive in so many other aspects of our lives, mm. but is incredibly dangerous in the way it got out of control here. And it was, it was fed by rivalry between the midwives profession and the um, obstetricians profession. Yeah, exactly. Which, You're um, absolutely, see, that's very interesting that you say that because there was a big rivalry between midwives and obstetricians, between, you know, the natural group and the medical group. Yes. And this um, now, I mean, thankfully, the Royal College of Midwives and the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists work together as one and they try and coordinate their advice. But for many mm. years, there was a, a kind of there was this rivalry where which led to basically a hesitation in certain hospitals amongst midwives mm. from handing over their patient to a doctor jeremy but what's weird about it all is that nobody starts out in the nhs being sort of malicious or mendacious or wanting to cover up mistakes why do you think they end up sort of painting themselves into this corner which seems very odd thing to do when you when your initial reason for joining a service like that is that you want to help people they are extremely compassionate people they've mm. they decide they mm. give their lives to helping people at their most vulnerable um moments of their lives when they're sick and when they're dying um and that doesn't change but you know in james titkin's case the temperature charts for his son joshua vanished inverted commas yeah um right. and that's a very big deal you can be struck off the medical register for destroying mm. medical notes and then mm. you think why did that happen well that midwife thought that if they found out that she'd failed to notice that joshua's temperature was too low she'd get mm. fired and so mm. it was the lower of the two risks mm. 
to yeah. Well, I remember. I remember when it happened. I should say that's an that's an allegation. I can't I can't prove any of that, but that is speculation mm. as to why someone may have done something. And we we need to make it that the automatic thing to do is to be open and transparent, mm. um, yeah. and uh, not what we have now, where people are terrified of just speaking honestly. So you think that leads to sort of systematic incompetence then, that sort of fear of being found out? What it leads to is something that is simply terrible, which is that we don't learn from mistakes. Mm. Because if you're not open Mm. and transparent about something that's gone wrong, you can't Mm. change the structures and processes. And the difference is that in, in your world and my world, if we make a mistake, no one dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in medicine, these people are very, very brave. Um, their world, even a human error that all of us can make, all of us make the whole time, there can be a tragic consequence. And mm-hmm. we therefore need to work doubly hard to support them to speak openly, um, which is what they've done in industries like the airline industry, the oil industry, mm-hmm. the nuclear industry. They've, they've recognized that if they fire people for the smallest of mistakes, then they won't be able to develop a, a positive safety culture. And was Shrewsbury and Telford particularly bad, or is this, do you think, the tip of the iceberg? Shrewsbury and Telford was particularly bad for the pressure that mothers were put under not to have C-sections. Mm. Um, but the, the broader issue of making it easier for doctors, nurses, and midwives to help out, that's, that's not just true across the NHS, that's actually true in hospitals around the world. Mm-hmm. And it's a global problem. We have about 2.6 million preventable deaths every year worldwide, which is about five every minute, according to the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I give you, you know, in, in, in an NHS hospital, it will be the same as hospitals in, in anywhere else in the world, about 50 deaths every week. And we know between mm-hmm. one and two of those deaths could have been prevented but who wants yeah. to go through all the 50 deaths and work out which the two it is? And everyone wants <laughs> no, to focus I, on I the just, patients who are alive. Just, you know, that's the problem. Exactly. And I just think with this, there's a very specific kind of culture toward women of, you know, if you don't do it in a certain way, there's something mm-hmm. wrong with you, you're inadequate, you're made to feel like you're a failure. I mean, there's a sort of moral judgment on women. And of course, we know that childbirth is a really dangerous thing for women to do. I mean, before we had antibiotics, Lots and lots of women died in childbirth. It was quite a normal thing to have happen. It's not as though it's this sort of magical um, process that happens really easily. It's you know it doesn't. It's not easy for people to give birth. At mm. And I, I just I just found this whole culture surrounding it. Well, is that terrible sort of self that sort of masochistic thing that women have about yeah. the idea that you know. They had yeah. a natural birth. It's superior exactly. to somebody who did something and else. There'd be, and there'd be, you know, there'd be one woman who would pop them out really easily, and then she'd yeah. be made to feel like, you know, she was sort of held up as a sort of brilliant example of everything that's wonderful. And an you earth know, mother, I think. An earth mother. Endless earth mothers. I know. And the terrible thing is that, you know, six months later, no one cares any which way how the baby is born, just as long as it's born <laughs> alive and well and healthy. Exactly. Exactly. But I feel, I mean, I do feel well done for commissioning the review, but what a yeah. shocker that it's come back like this. Yes, I think it is. And I think it's, you know, I just hope this is a moment when we can start to mm. bite the bullet and say that in truth, and this should be on all of our consciences, we only have today's report because a small group of families were prepared yeah. to relive the tragedy of losing their child mm. over and mm. over again 
in order to force the authorities to tell them the truth about why their baby died. And it should never be on the shoulders of bereaved no. parents to do that. The NHS should itself want to know why something went wrong and to learn from mistakes. Mm. And that should be their first priority. And we shouldn't put this horrific pressure on grieving families to pick up the pieces like this. No, and they should never have been put in that position in the first place. And I imagine it can't have been easy for them because obviously they would have faced a lot of pushback from the medical professionals. Yes, and I mean from the, the authorities. And of course what happens is that by the, you know, the trust is then advised by lawyers who say, mm. be very careful what you say, and then they get defensive. And sometimes even, you know, and there are lots of, you know, very good people who work at a place like Shrewsbury and Telford who want to be open and honest, and they're told, no, you can't be. Mm. And then you get a defensive culture, and the families get more and more frustrated. And it's never about money. I mean, you know, that the going rate, if, you've, if the NHS has been negligent and a death is caused, is, is something pathetic, like £20,000 yeah, um, for, for losing a life. It's not about money. It's a, mm. For them, it's about creating some meaning to their child's life through the hope that a lesson can be learnt and that another family won't have to go through the same tragedy. That's all they want. And on the sort of NHS side, is it, was it about money? I mean, how much does it cost to do a cesarean? You know, were they trying to save money in that respect? Possibly that may have been a motive of some mm. people somewhere in the system. It's hard to know. But if I tell you this, uh, Sarah and Imogen, we spend more money settling litigation claims for accidents and mistakes in maternity units than the entire cost of every obstetrician and maternity nurse in the NHS every year. Um, it's about really? just under half of the £2.2 billion we spend in compensation every year. So, um, we spend £2.2 billion in compensation every year? We spend, exactly. So we spend billions on this. And um, oh. in, Sweden, in Sweden, they spend half the proportion of their total healthcare costs as we do, because they've created a culture where um, instead of blaming doctors for individual errors, they support them, and then they're able yeah. to learn from mistakes. And if we had the same maternity safety rates in Sweden, a thousand mm. more babies would live every year in the UK. So, you know, there's a lot to learn from other countries. In I mean, I, the thing is, I don't think people mind, you know, obviously, you know, medicine is an, you know, can be an, an, quite an inexact science in the sense that things can go wrong and no one blames doctors when things like that happen but it's just the sort of deliberate creating of of a sort of dangerous situation for mothers which seems to have happened at Shrewsbury where they deliberately you know made it difficult for them it feels almost malicious it's really horrible exactly um, and that's that's why you know this has got to be a big moment of change and I hope mm. I think this will be uh, this report will stand up alongside the Robert Francis report into what happened at mid-staffs as a very seminal moment for the NHS. Um, and I have mm. to say that Sajid Javi gave a very good statement to Parliament. He got the tone exactly right. He didn't try and um, sugarcoat the very difficult messages. Um, mm. So I, I am hopeful that you know, lessons really will be learned. You're listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards-Jones. You can visit maleplus.co.uk slash subscribe 
To get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at MailPlus, uh, at Westminster Wag, or Imogen at Imogen EJ. Prince Andrew has drawn criticism following his appearance at a memorial intended to celebrate his father, the Duke of Edinburgh. The Duke of York, in his first public appearance since settling a civil sex assault case, accompanied her to Westminster Abbey. Joining me now is royal biographer Angela Levin. Angela, thank you for joining us. Now, this has caused a little bit of consternation, hasn't it? I mean, he not only did he come with her from Windsor, he also walked her up the aisle. Mm. I know. I think it's caused an awful lot. And I suspect that the Queen, who has been so sheltered recently, certainly since she's had COVID, will be surprised at how much it's overtaken the ceremony. I think it's a huge pity because there were some wonderful comments made about the Duke and it could have discussed that and people would have seen much more of him than um, they would have expected. It was quite revealing, positive and a few negative things. It was a really very good description of him. And here we are, you know, everybody is talking about Andrew. I do feel that as a mother, she has every right to choose whoever she wants to walk her down. And indeed, I was uh, supporting that Prince Andrew should be there most definitely because it was his father. But I think the process of sort of taking over the key position of walking down the aisle, even though it was smaller than most other people had to go down, was um, very inappropriate, really. And I did notice that when the service was over, Prince Charles got up and moved towards her, and she sort of moved back because she mm. wanted Andrew to take her back. Mm. That, I thought, was absolutely extraordinary. I might have made a mistake in what she did because no, it was I only a second right. or two. But I think you're right. very carefully... And I think he had no right to do that. She had a right to ask him because, you know, he's her son, but he could say, I think it might cause a bit mm. of a to-do. How livid are Charles and William, do you think, that well, this Charles has happened? Charles and William are extremely angry. I mean, they were the two that said to the Queen and persuaded her that um, Andrew had to be cut off. He couldn't carry on doing engagements on behalf of the royal family. It wasn't a good look. And they were absolutely in harmony with this. Prince Charles has never really got on with him because he hasn't liked the flavour of his brother. But the Queen apparently said, you know, this is what I want. And she does have that right, but it was a mistake and it's a great pity. I mean, she is, you know, only a mother. You know, she is obviously first and foremost monarch, but she's pretty, you know, she's also a mother and she clearly loves Andrew very much. And is, you know, this, all this stuff about him being her favourite son, I mean, it does now look as though it is true. She will genuinely forgive him anything, mm. even, you know, <laughs> even this. Do you think he's done Harry a favour by taking <laughs> some of the slack? Because we aren't talking about where's Harry. Yeah. We're talking about Andrew. So do you think Harry's breathing gentle sigh of relief? No, I, I've talked a lot to various people about Harry. I think it made it worse, actually, because he was trying to sort of stand there in the front row and say, look, I'm working my way back, which she seems very deceitful and completely unaware of what the 
public feel about him. And the other one was Harry wasn't there. There were three heirs to the throne there. There were royals from different countries. There were 700 people there who were connected to the charities that the Duke of Edinburgh uh, supported. And yet Harry was three, you know, five tiny children, really. Not tiny, but well, five and, and, you know, and the, the fact is, The fact is he's very happy to go to Holland next week, isn't he, mm, or the week yeah. after, to do his, his thing. I mean, it, it was actually just a straightforward snub. Of course I, it was, I, yeah. There's just no other way of couching it, I'm afraid. I mean, I just think he's beyond the pale because he could have just got on a plane yeah. Popped over, and this whole nonsense about security is is rubbish. It's just if, not very classy, is it? If he just yeah. if he just travelled with his brother or something, he he wouldn't mm. have needed his own security. No one's going to. No, I mean, he you know, no one's going to have have a pop at Harry. It's just beyond the pale, mm. Harry's behaviour. And I think that Andrews is very similar, but it's a slightly different situation because coming from a different angle, isn't it? Yes, mm. yeah. But he's always been he's always been given a free pass by mm. her. There's just something about their relationship, I think, that uh, you do, know. Do, do you think it's the sort of general behaviour with the spare? That's the problem, because they're both the number two, aren't yeah. they? So, you know, that sort of inherent selfishness that they're both exhibiting, that selfish behaviour, do you think it's... Well, they, d- both, have a, they both have an overinflated self sense of their, self, of their own importance yeah, exactly. in the grand scheme of and things. And no sense of duty. And they're, and they're much more, aren't they, Andrew? They're, they're very worried about their own status mm. all the time. Did well, you they're think obsessed so- with me, me, me. That's mm. what yes. it is, yeah. really. But the, thing, the important thing is that there's a lot of murmuring now that because he was in such a, Andrew was in such a prominent position at the service that he's going to try and come also to the Jubilee celebrations in June. And I think that if the Queen agrees to that, there will be real outbursts because a memorial service is understandable in that it is very emotional and it's very, very intimate. But this is going to be a jolly celebration and Mm. you don't need somebody there with a background of Prince Charles. Andrew, Mm. do you think the Queen fundamentally doesn't think that Andrew's done anything wrong? Mm. I think she, she segregates everything, one thing from the other. And I think her feelings about Andrew are in the wrong drawer at the moment. I think that she she's a very wise woman. and But he has a way of persuading her. I don't know whether it's bullying. I don't know whether it's super kindness or he's going around to see her all the time. But he's obviously got away with her, which the others haven't. Harry has also away with her but he is a grandson and I think the feelings are are different between your son and grandson but I just wanted to say about Harry that the excuse is so pathetic come up with something you know we've got Megan's not very well or Megan's very busy and I can't leave the children you can see a tiny element there but when you just say I won't feel safe when there were (laughs) hundreds of protection officers there well exactly I mean, exactly. he is just a pussy. He's just a pussy, basically. I think we just need to, yeah. you know. I mean, it's just, it's just, it just. He, I think it's spare syndrome. He's syndrome. very powerful. He's very powerful. Um, you know that he can really 
ruin the monarchy by coming out with more and more vitriolic comments about them, most of which are probably not true. Mm. So, um, you know, unfortunately, he can't be dismissed because he's now got no hell barred about what he says um, in detriment about his family. And of course, as soon and you know, of course, we all know that as soon as the Queen passes away, he'll just go full throttle, won't he? Because it'll just be Andrew. all out war. What? No, no Harry, well, Harry, Harry. Harry. Yeah, Harry. Well, he's already on an outroar when he um, talked to Oprah Winfrey. I mean, you can't be much worse than that when, you know, his grandfather was laid dying in hospital. Mm. And if he could say it then, then it's going to run out of steam there. There's only so I many agree. times you can criticize your family for the same thing over mm. and over and over again public get really bored with that. I don't know how many times Netflix would like a documentary about that to um, make and earn their money, but mm. I think that they're going to say, oh, we've, we've heard most of that before. But there is somebody there in the background really trying to make sure he stays a victim and sees how, what a terrible life he has. And pulling his strings and making sure he says all the right things and presses all the right mm. buttons. Absolutely. Thank you, Angela. That was very okay. helpful. Thank you. Lovely yes. to talk to you again. And okay. uh, well, I'm no Thank doubt you. we'll speak again. The pandemic has affected our dreams, apparently. Mm. It's certainly making me sleep more. I, think, I, I, I seem to have some sort of terrible narcolepsy. Anyway, <laughs> so what do they mean? And here to help us understand is Teresa Chung, author of the Dream Dictionary from A. Two Z. That should be zzz, lots of Z. Oh, it should. Yes, <laughs> that's my clever joke. <laughs> Is it Hi, God? Teresa. You're so smart. I know. You knew. <laughs> Morning, Teresa. How are you? Morning. I'm just thinking. My publishers missed a trick there. They, they did. have. Yeah. Yes. They did. The they, they did. Yeah. It's never too late to get them to change. No. It, yeah. So I have. I have found that I have been sleeping like a sleep monster. Really? Yeah, I mean, I often go to bed now at about nine mm. and I very happily would wake up at about ten the following day. Wow, yeah, like a teenager. It's like I die, yes. Like a teenager. And I can't really, I don't really seem to dream. Right. I mean, I did have a dream the other day that I was pregnant, which was obviously actually uh, a nightmare. That sounds revolting. <laughs> <laughs> I was very upset about it. Well, you're giving it. birth to alien or I something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I have a recurring dream in my life that I have a baby and then I forget it somewhere. Like oh. I put it in a drawer and then I go out and have dinner or something and then I come home and I think, oh, oh my God, the baby, where is it? Oh, there, it's in the drawer. And then I open the drawer and of course the baby's all shriveled up and dead. Oh, that's Sarah, a, that, that's horrible. That's a recurring dream that I have. Right. Um, what does that mean to us? <laughs> Oh, there's so much to unpick here. But oh. first of all, the Dalai Lama said the best meditation is sleep. Because what you're doing, your unconscious is just processing and working away. It's like your nocturnal intuition dreaming. Now, you say you don't dream much. You do. Research shows we have five or six dreams every single night. We just don't recall them. And you typically don't recall them because we're waking up in the wrong way that isn't conducive to dream recall which means usually with an alarm or to-dos on our mind because to nurture dream recall, you've got to stay in the same position. You've got to sort of like close your eyes and mold. That's means. quite interesting because on the rare occasions where I do remember dreams, it's always when I haven't set an alarm really? and I just go back to yeah. sleep. I often dream when I wake up, you know, have a cup of tea and then think, oh, I'll just have just another go five back. minutes. Yes, but that's, that's yeah. when you have the best ones. And then I yes. have dreams Like then. sort of yeah. 7.30 mm. in the morning yeah. or something, yeah. yeah. 
Well, that's because you're coming from REM sleep, which REM rapid eye movement sleep is when most dreams, not all, but when most dreams happen. And that's usually in the early part of the morning and they're fresh on your mind. And that's why when you wake up in the night, your dream recall tends to be there because you've come out of a REM stage of sleep. And I am on a worldwide mission. Well, I have been for the last 20 years because I wrote this dream dictionary actually in 2004 or five, I think. And it's been constantly in print, reissued, gone all over the world. And um, in 2019, it was reissued again by Harper and of course then we had the lockdown dream phenomenon where sleep and dream experts were noticing this massive increase in vivid dreaming as a reaction to the lockdown but I understood it completely because it's basically your dreaming mind helping you process trauma and difficult things and offering you through the symbolic language of dreams some help to help you evolve and your baby dream Sarah is just so classic because babies in dreams are new ideas creativity mm. so it means that you in the work you do you're always having ideas for features for podcasts for interviews or whatever and you're shelving them and then maybe you come back and the, t- and the moment's gone mm. the baby mm. isn't actually a real baby it's ideas because oh, <laughs> you're dreaming about yourself people don't understand go and watch inception the movie where all the characters in the dreams stare at the dreamer you are actually dreaming about aspects of your personality and people make the mistake of looking at their dreams literally. Mm. You're not dreaming mm. about a car crash or a plane crash. You're looking at an internal car crash mm. or plane crash. Well, Teresa, can I ask you a question? I always dream that I've actually murdered somebody and, no. I've, and I've buried them under the front porch. Murder in dreams. If you think about what is a murder, it's a change being forced on you that you haven't Ooh. asked for. Mm. You've got to look at it symbolically in your life. There's some things in your life that you're having to do that you don't really feel comfortable with, but you've had to do them. That's what Mm. your dreaming mind is expressing to you. Your dreaming mind is a frustrated poet or an artist. Now, an artist wants to do an image or a story. He'll do a a work of art with all these symbols, and you've got to unpick the meanings. You remember in English literature when we did pathetic fallacy, metaphors, Mm. cunning Mm. symbols? That's how you interpret a dream. It's a work of art. It's a visual representation of your internal Oh, world. If you have nightmares, they're a transformative gift because your dreaming mind, your nocturnal intuition cares so much about you. It's using shocking, disturbing images like murder, like lying, yeah. like cheating, mm. like vampires, like monsters to shock you, to notice what's going on inside you and to decode it. Are, yeah. are there any sort of basics that we should have, you know, in our dream decoding practices? Like, for example, flying, having your teeth pulled, you know, I have one where I can't thick. find. I have one where I can't find my pants. A nice. I actually can't find a pair yeah. of pants anywhere. But, but I can't leave the house because I just don't have any pants. But are there, some, are there about four or five basics that, that you can decode oh, your dreams? And I have with? another yeah. one. I have another one. Sorry, sorry to talk about me all the time, but it's yeah. obviously about me. I have another one where I'm trying to. This is a really common one, actually. What does this mean to me? I have one where I'm trying to ring somebody on my phone, mm. and I just can't get the phone number right. Yes. So common. I love that. Did you know that there, every year there's a top 100 dreams that we have? Oh, tell you know, me. The there you 10. go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're mentioned these are common archetypal experiences, again, which need to be interpreted symbolically. Let's do teeth falling out. There's so much about that's concerned with appearance. It's also moving from one stage of life to another because when you're a baby, you lose your baby teeth. And it's just look at it like that. It's actually also in this social media age, lots of people are dreaming about that because they're concerned about aging and mm. they're concerned about how they look but look always go for the positive in the dream interpretation and think well I'm changing from one state to another and and losing things of course it's feeling that you're you're not keeping up and that you're not on top of things and your dreaming mind is trying to to sort of cathartically express all that for you 
um, not having pants, for example, you know, pants are also to, to protect your vulnerability. Right, I so say. not wanting to go out or say, but also really, you know, relieving your, yourself, you know, and getting rid of negative thoughts and stuff mm. like that. That's what it's so. Forgetting that means like, yeah. oh, <laughs> I'm always being mean? robbed as well in my dream. Being robbed, my handbag Other is always being robbed. Other people taking that your happens ideas. to Imogen. I have all of Imogen's ideas in my bag here, and <laughs> like not giving them back. Look, I want everybody to realise that the most exciting part of their existence is when they put their head on the pillow at night and go to sleep. We yeah. don't know where we go into that land of dreams. I've also done massive research into precognitive dreams, that deja vu experience when you dreamt something and then two days later... Oh, I oh love a goodness, deja vu. Yeah. yeah. I, love a de- I love a deja vu. It's one of my favourite states. <laughs> the dreaming mind is incredible and... Look, Einstein dreamt the theory of relativity. Did he? Um, mm. You know, yeah, I mean, they had a stream of sitting on the planets and everything. These dreams actually can actually change the world. People channel books in their sleep, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Famously. Well, yeah, Frankenstein was, was a yeah. dream. Um, and yes. movies as well, you know, like the Terminator franchise started as a dream. I mean, also, did you know Google started with a dream? Don't discount your dreams because mm. in them you are... Because we you know the only thing missing in dreams is logic and reason. Mm. Mm. And when logic and reason go, you are able to brainstorm and make connections that you wouldn't allow yourself to do when you're awake. That's why dreams are a source of great art, great literature, movies, scientific discoveries, inventions. I list a lot of these in my books and it's absolutely incredible. You would not believe how much of our life has been inspired by a vision in a dream. And what you were having was a visionary dream. And the trouble is, though, your, your rational side would have said, nonsense, it's just a dream. And that's mm. the worst words that people can ever say because you're, what you're doing is shutting down the intuitive ability of your brain to make creative connections. But when you're awake, you can't go there because no. you're too rational. No, no, because but your you rational know, brain says, don't be so silly. You're <laughs> some mad. You get back in your box. <laughs> it's creativity unleashed. Yeah. And that's yeah. why it's the best friend of all visionaries and artists is the dreaming state. Yes. Um, yeah, good. It can be that's, a, that's why actually having a lion is a really good thing. <laughs> that's, that's how I think, well, that's what we're taking away from we, this. We were dealing with so much grief and pain. The dreaming yeah. mind was showing us, you know, that maybe there's more to this life than meets the eye, that consciousness can, you know, it was trying to help heal us. And that's why we had the lockdown dream phenomenon. Okay, the rational reason is we got more REM. We got more sleep. Yes, so of course we're going to dream more. And also in the mornings, we potted around a bit more. We didn't like have to rush with to-dos. So our dreaming mind just seized the moment. And I hope as yes. we wake up from the pandemic, we don't lose that connection to our inner, inner world. Because the yeah. inner world is the most important thing. It is, Teresa. And on that note, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Teresa, author of the Dream Dictionary from A to Z. I think when they do, I think when I they do the next, to sleep now. <laughs> when they do the next edition of your book, they should make sure they put lots of Zs on mm. it. Oh, thank you so much. You <laughs> Sweet dreams, Thanks, Teresa. You've been listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 